from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. I didn't have an investigative team. I didn't have a data team or all the things that, that people now have at newspapers. And, and I mostly bumbled my way through dumpster diving and getting moles in kitchens to, to feed me invoices and that kind of thing. This week, Laura Riley, food critic for the Tampa Bay Times, talks with Alex Chambers about her groundbreaking work exposing fraudulent claims in the world of farm-to-table dining. We give a second listen to that interview from earlier this year. Harvest Public Media has an update on hemp farming in the Midwest. And I've got a fresh summer salad idea at the end of the show, so stay tuned. First, we go to the news with Renee Reed. Hello again, Renee. Hi, Kate. In May this year, the Council for Oklahoma City passed the moratorium on permits for convenience stores that are less than one mile from each other. The ban will last through November. Once the ban expires, a zoning ordinance may kick in that would attract more stores that offer fresh food. Research shows that convenience stores situated in areas with high poverty and low food access tend to also be areas with historic racial segregation. Other studies have shown that dollar stores create fewer jobs than grocery stores and push out larger grocery chains that offer healthier options. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance identified similar efforts in Tulsa, Oklahoma and Mesquite, Texas since 2018. Explosive growth in the number of dollar stores across the country has been linked to increasing levels of enrollment in SNAP benefits. More than 80% of SNAP benefits are spent at supermarkets with fresh food and healthy options, but convenience stores started moving into low-income neighborhoods to take advantage of increased SNAP spending. The EPA announced this week it will not ban a pesticide chemical linked to brain damage in children. Chlorpyrifos belongs to a class of chemicals that includes sarin nerve gas and works by attacking the nervous system. Though it's been banned in household products since 2001, it is still allowed in agricultural pesticides. In fact, it's sometimes referred to as the Coca-Cola of pesticides because of the frequency of its use. More than half of all apples and broccoli sold in the U.S. have been treated with the chemical. In 2016, the EPA released a report warning that chlorpyrifos and other pesticides can cause intelligence deficits and attention, memory, and motor problems in children. But despite mounting evidence, the EPA will leave chlorpyrifos on the market saying, quote, critical questions remained regarding the significance of the data that suggests that clopyrifos causes neurological damage in young children. Patty Goldman, an attorney for the environmental law organization Earth Justice, said in a statement, quote, by allowing clopyrifos to stay in our fruits and vegetables, Trump's EPA is breaking the law and neglecting the overwhelming scientific evidence that this pesticide harms children's brains. That's the news for this week. Thanks to Chad Bouchard and Taylor Killo for those reports. Thank you, Renee. No problem, Kate. In a community the size of Bloomington, Indiana, it's easy to take for granted the homespun sincerity of our farmer's market. 
In our market, the folks handing you the ears of sweet corn or the heirloom tomatoes you just selected, they're often the ones who planted the seeds and weeded the beds, harvested the fruit, and also the ones that packed it into the pickup truck that morning before market. Our farmer's market has a stringent verification process. The food farmers sell at market has to be grown on their own land, and many of the growers invite customers out for farm visits. You get the chance to know your farmer, and in many cases, to see for yourself where your food comes from. Our guest this week had a different experience in Tampa Bay, Florida. Laura Riley is the food critic for the Tampa Bay Times. A couple of years ago, she started wondering about some of the sourcing of the foods offered in the stalls of open-air markets, as well as the menus in some of her favorite restaurants. Laura Riley visited the IU campus in the fall as part of the IU Food Institute's speaker series, and she stopped by the Earth Eats studio to talk with Alex Chambers about her work. Welcome to Earth Eats. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, glad to have you. I wanted to start off with the uh, investigation into food fraud. What got you started on that, and then what did you end up finding? So I'd been thinking for a number of years that I was being lied to, and that the that the and 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 I'll tell you the small ways. You know, the kind of like. Everyone, you know, everyone, all the restaurants claim this is a house-made dessert. And it's like, I know that dessert. I have seen that dessert come off the back of the Cisco truck. And you kind of think those type of lies are, are benign. You know, they're, they're kind of white lies in the scheme of things. But I started seeing it with the advent of kind of farm-to-table restaurants, uh, more pernicious lies that were misrepresentations of farmers' work, essentially, um, or I suspected as much. So I... I had been talking, I'd kind of haranguing, I guess, uh, the paper for a while. It said a number of times that I thought, I think there's something here. And my editor or my editor's editor basically said, you know, Riley, bring us one thing and we'll talk. So I went to one of my favorite restaurants, a restaurant I'd reviewed really favorably, and I just took a picture of their chalkboard. And, you know, it was like, a, you know, one of those hipster multi, multicolored chalk chalkboards. I brought it back to the office and I started calling the farmers listed or the farmers or food producers listed on the list or on the, the chalkboard. And um, the first one I called, it was uh, the, the grouper and snapper at the restaurant where they were purportedly um, caught by Captain Kirk Morgan. That was his name. And I was kind of like, do I call this guy Captain Kirk or do I call him Captain Morgan? And either way, it's <laughs> terrible. So anyway, so I called up Captain Kirk and said, hey, I want to talk to you about your relationship with this restaurant, Boca. And he said, what's a boca, and I said, "Well, you you you're a commercial fisherman, right?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah." And I said, "Well, so you must sell to, or you must maybe through a middleman sell to this restaurant, your your snapper and grouper." And he's like, "Well, that's impossible because I don't catch snapper and grouper. I catch uh, mullet and sheep's head. You know, very different species." And I said, "Well, how could this have happened?" So we talked for a few more minutes, and then the guy said, "Wait a second. I was at Icy Sharks, which is this big kind of." retail and wholesale fish market. I was at Icy Sharks and a chef stopped me and asked me what I, I caught and we exchanged business cards. So I honestly think what was happening was that this chef at this restaurant had a, a file drawer full of business cards of farmers and, you know, and it was like a game of Mad Libs. So he basically would fill the chalkboard up with all the business card names in his in his uh, file drawer. So I, I went to the paper and I said, I have proof that at least this restaurant that I suspected as much of is m misrepresenting what's on their, you know, their farm to table items on their list. And, and they said, well, go ahead. We'll give you a couple months off of your regular duties and uh, bring us back a story. 
And so I, I didn't have an investigative team. I didn't have a data team or all the things that, that people now have at newspapers. And, and I mostly bumbled my way through dumpster diving and getting moles in kitchens to, to feed me invoices and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, eventually kind of had a, a critical mass of stuff that I'd found out. Then I kept the scale of it hyper-local and very small. And I think it actually had more impact that way because I think everybody at that moment, once it went online, people nationally were all saying, yeah, I think that's happening here where I am, too. So it was an interesting moment, I think, you know, to, to do something that was very, very local um, that resonated with people in all different parts of the country. And you started with restaurants, but then you also moved to looking at farmers markets. Well, farmers markets, I, I was from Northern California and moved to Florida and, and wondered why the farmers markets had no farmers at them. It was a mysterious development and that it was clear there were a lot of outdoor markets. I mean, I hate to even call them farmers markets, outdoor markets where in Florida you could buy apples and asparagus and things that flagrantly don't grow in the state of Florida. And and I kind of, I thought, well, this is another area where I don't know if they're doing anything illegal or really even immoral, but it certainly seems in poor taste to have a reseller kiosk right next to a legitimate, you know, small scale farmer who's struggling and, you know, doing all the delivery and, and marketing and all the things himself. Um, it seems like a, um, a surefire way to, to kill off a lot of small farmers. That for that part of the story, I would um, basically, I used the, the, the wonderful world of Facebook. So I would go to these people's Facebook pages, figure out where their farm was and just drive there on a Sunday morning and surprise them. You know, like we've, we basically, me and a photographer would like show up at people's front doors and they'd be in their pajamas. And we'd say like, hey, we tried to call. We're, you know, we're just here to see your animals or we're, we want to meet your chickens or whatever it was. And half the time people were happy to have, you know, most farmers are like, come on in. I'm in my pajamas, but, you know, you're welcome to see my chickens. And half of them mysteriously didn't have anything planted or were in transition with the farm or, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, it was it was a pretty mixed bag. So where is this coming from? Well, I think, first of all, there are more and more people all the time that are interested in the provenance of their food. And some of that is because they want to be um, gourmands and just, you know, fresh food, fresh local food tastes better, you know, if it travels you know, shorter distances. Some people, it's very fear-based. You know, people want to understand the food, the origins of their food, because they're afraid of what that food could do to them, you know. And sometimes it's people want to keep the money in the local economy. You know, there are a lot of different ways that people get to this idea of wanting local or sustainable food. And it's certainly easier to tell someone you're doing it than to actually do it, you know. And I think we just don't have the infrastructure in terms of policing at the local, state, or federal level to really crack down on on fraud. So about the policing, what can we do about this? You've said consumers need to make more of an effort, push harder at farmers markets, I think, at restaurants to ask about where their food is coming from. Mm -hmm. It seems like wouldn't it be better to have more regulators? Well, any change happens either bottom up or top down, right? And and it's it's a situation, I think, in this case, where both could potentially be effective. If we kind of demand that legislators take a look at some of this stuff, that is one avenue. Um, and I'll tell you, in the state of Florida, I went to the commissioner of agriculture and told him about this problem and said, this is serious. What are you going to do about it? And he was 
utterly unruffled by the prospect of people misrepresenting at farmers markets. He was saying, you know, this is not this is a guy who who wanted to be governor and and has a long history, many generations in ag in Florida. So has a vested interest in Florida farmers, you know, and that's kind of always been part of his platform. But for him, it was more important to get farmers markets or let's just call them outdoor markets in places that were, you know, food deserts to get wholesome food into those places was more important than to drill down on are they farmers or are they resellers. And I get that. I totally understand that. I think that's a legitimate argument. He had other fish to fry. But I think there are other subtle ways of demanding change. You know, for instance, the state of Florida has about 40 seafood festivals every year. These are huge draws, huge tourist draws. People come from, you know, some of them, it's, you know, 140,000 people come to a town of 20,000 people to go to these festivals. Well, I went, I did a story, another story kind of in this series on that phenomenon. And, you know, these kiosks or these kind of vendors will have, the front will say, Florida grouper sandwich, $9, or Florida shrimp po' boy, et cetera, et cetera. All you have to do is walk around to the back of the kiosk and there's stacks of boxes of like Vietnamese shrimp and, and Southeast Asian basa, which is like a, you know, kind of a, a bottom feeder fish that that is frequently substituted for expensive fish like grouper. It would have been easy to bust these people. Consumers have to exert pressure on on whatever bodies do govern those kinds of things. You know, obviously at a federal level, it's, you know, FDA, USDA. But there are state officials, state inspectors that should oversee those kinds of things. You know, they should be more concerned about that than they are. Have you seen changes happening since the, so the articles came out two years ago? Have you seen like ripple effects from them? Yeah, our our, um, state attorney general took a real interest in this. She did initiate this investigation, and there there has been some kind of token effort to, to bring, to make people accountable. But I think in any, in any industry, Liars will be liars, and so they will amend their behavior fleetingly. I mean, the the one of the restaurants that kind of was the most egregious perpetrator in the series that I did, they hired someone to be their forager, their kind of farmer liaison, and this young woman was essentially just doing PR, but you know, kind of trumpeting the 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 farmers and and that kind of thing, and they promptly fired her as soon as they felt like the heat was off of them. So. You know, it's. I think also restaurants in particular, they they operate with such narrow margins that there are times where, you know, it's just really hard to do the right thing, and it's so tempting to to hedge or to, you know, greenwash a little bit. You know, buy a lot of Cisco stuff and then kind of finish off over the top with some microgreens from down the street. So um, it's you know, it's it is it's very hard to do the right thing, um, especially if you're talking about a place where there's real seasonal change, because consumers don't know what is in season. We had an Olive Garden commercial recently in the state of Florida that was talking about local Gulf seafood. And the picture on the ad was a salmon that does not in any way grow. <laughs> you cannot buy a salmon, find a salmon in the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, but that that reflects that people don't know. And it's easy to pull the wool over our eyes. Has doing this investigative project, you were a food critic, you've been a food critic. Did doing that investigative project change how you approach your writing? Oh, 100%. Because I felt I was, compl- I was part of the problem. I was blithely parroting back lies that people were telling me in my reviews. And so now I am much more skeptical. And I also frequently say prove it if people make claims. I recently did a review of a restaurant that's another restaurant from one of the chief perpetrators in the series. 
and they told me about this deal they had with this cattle rancher in Florida and that they were basically raising cattle, you know, whole life cycle and, you know, not corn finished, et cetera, for this restaurant. And I, I absolutely was not going to write this down, you know, until I had proof. So I had to independently find out whether they were making up tall tales. And in fact, it was completely valid. But I, I increasingly feel like that's part of the job. You know, food critic, like there aren't that many of us left at, at major U.S. dailies. Newspapers are under, you know, critically hard times and, and lots of financial pressures. And it's a it's a job that's largely gone away. But the ones of us that are left are beats have changed. And there's a lot more investigative work and metro work and even just kind of consumer journalism that we all do. It's not so much just thumbs up, thumbs down, I think now. After producing this investigative series, Laura Riley decided to reveal her identity publicly instead of trying to stay undercover, as many food critics do. Alex asked her how this changed her work. Definitely has allowed me to do some some bigger stories and some more kind of deep divey stories and, and stories where you're kind of immersed. Earlier this year, I did a project on Florida Florida oyster aquaculture. So. Florida wild oysters have been really decimated, and the the short reason for that is that the salinity of that body of water has increased dramatically in recent years. And the oysters can hack it. You know, they're pretty pretty sturdy beasts. But what it has meant is that the predators that come in from the Gulf of Mexico now can do it 12 months out of the year, and it's just a buffet. So the wild oysters have been completely decimated. So there are all these oystermen who are essentially on the dole waiting for something to turn around that's probably never going to turn around. So meanwhile, all these young people, a lot of you know millennials with like marine biology degrees are like, well, let's do oyster aquaculture at the top of the water column. So it's the, the, all the apparatus sits up high. The predators can't get to it. And you can pull it in and out. I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's the difference between hunting and farming, though. So it, ha- it comes with a lot of kind of ideological differences and kind of this you know, it's almost like this, like, you know, Crips and Bloods kind of uh, mutual distrust kind of thing. So I love those stories where it's about disruptive technology and the culture, the interstices that happen kind of where the old meets the new. So I did this story in, in Apalachicola Bay with this young guy whose family's been, you know, fourth generation oyster, you know, oyster tongers from Apalachicola Bay. And he's having to go into the next county because he can't do it there. So he goes into the next county and is doing top of the water column oyster aquaculture. And he's a little bit of a pariah, you know, in amongst his kind of longtime family and friends. So it's those kind of stories that are just much harder to do if you're if you're kind of worried about who knows you. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Laura Riley has served as food critic for the Tampa Bay Times for nearly 11 years. Her award-winning Farm to Fable series led to nominations for a Pulitzer Prize for Criticism and a James Beard Award. Laura Riley left the Tampa Bay Times earlier this year for a position at the Washington Post. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio. 
and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the Expected. More at 812-336-6838. Hemp. It's the same type of plant as marijuana, but with less THC, the part that gets you high. Many U.S. farmers are growing it for the first time in more than 80 years under new laws, including here in Indiana. But as Harvest Public Media's Madeline Beck found, hemp's potential comes with a lot of risk. Soggy crops, seed fraud, and uncertainty. Those are only a few of the challenges facing the nation's blooming hemp industry. I started getting questions like crazy. It's all over the place, my emails, my phone. That's Philip Alberti with the University of Illinois Extension. Along with a handful of others, Illinois started licensing industrial hemp farming this year. More than 500 producers there are okayed to plant more than 13,000 acres. Hemp is a hardy plant, but Alberti says Midwest's torrential rains were brutal. Hemp likes water, but it doesn't like wet feet. And, uh, you know, this year has been for the most part, you know, unprecedented. Add to that faulty seeds. Farmers around the state have reported getting seeds that don't germinate well or aren't what they ordered. And those seeds can easily cost more than $10,000 a pound, generally shipped from Colorado, Canada, or Europe. If seeds all sprout, it can fetch a pretty penny as fibers for clothes or industrial materials, grains for food, or CBD, an oil popularized for many health benefits proven or not. For hemp growers in Illinois, Alberti says, I think it's safe to assume north than 90, 95% of those applications were with the intent of doing it for CBD. But while CBD's market has skyrocketed, it's hard to build an industry on a crop that hasn't been produced in the U.S. for decades. Hemp machinery and production facilities can be hard to come by. Take it from Jeff Whaling, chairman of the National Hemp Association who helped legalize hemp growing. There is no harvesting equipment. There isn't a huge seed supply. There is no decortication facilities, which are necessary components to tear this crop apart into its uh, raw components. He says there are small processors out there, but overall, whaling cautions farmers to have a buyer before they risk everything on a crop that has insufficient insurance options, few bank and lending options, and no real guarantees. I would hate to see farmers uh, wanting to jump into hemp and there not be a marketplace. So, you know, be cautioned, buyer beware are words that I use continuously as we move forward. Consider this. If a farmer grows hemp for CBD, they need female plants only, which produce CBD-infused flowers. If males come along, either from a mixed seed batch or from a neighboring hemp field, they'll pollinate the flower and ruin the crop. Pollen from hemp can drift as far as 7, 10, some say as far as 20 miles. And we don't know how certain hemp varieties behave in certain climates. If it makes too much THC, the plant will have to be destroyed. That's considered marijuana. So Whaling wants the U.S. Department of Agriculture to take several things into account while coming up with federal hemp rules expected next year like seed regulation, growing transparency, interstate commerce issues, banking issues. But some have already had luck. In western Illinois, there's a greenhouse with 90,000 hemp seedlings to be planted across a few nearby acres. There's a strong possibility that you could grow somewhere between 20 and, and 
$55,000 an acre off of him. That's Andy Houston. He's a sixth generation farmer and he's one of the few people in Illinois who grew hemp last year as a research test pilot. From that crop, he had seeds to sell this year and he got experience to share with customers. He even bought his own CBD extraction machine to process in-house. With the acres that we have, uh, it should keep our oil extractor going for 12 months. Of course, he's had to change how he does things. Like many others, he'd had to harvest it by hand last year. But he's trying a disc mower this year, something used in hay, and also trying to limit weeds. Without approved pesticides, hemp has to be grown organically. So while Houston's hemp has been doing well, he's still growing corn and soybeans and still figuring things out. I think I will probably be learning about hemp for the rest of my life, but that's what makes it pretty interesting. So those with hemp experience say to start small, find a buyer, and don't bet the farm on it just yet. Madeline Beck, Harvest Public Media. Hear more from this reporter collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Normally, I don't share my own recipes here on Earth Eats, but I'm making an exception this time. This recipe is simple and delightfully suited to summer, and I want you to try it. So here goes. You want to start with two ripe apricots. If yours aren't perfectly ripe, I think it's better to use slightly underripe rather than overripe. You want them to be pretty firm. And then you're going to want to pit these and slice them thinly. Next, you want a medium-sized fennel bulb. If you're not familiar with this ingredient, it's basically the wide stalks at the base of a fennel plant. And this variety of fennel is grown specifically for its bulb rather than for the seed that's often used as a seasoning. The fennel bulb is similar to celery or to like a Napa cabbage stalk in terms of its texture. The flavor is much milder than fennel seed, but it still carries that subtle hint of licorice. So you wanna cut off that rough end of the fennel bulb and cut the bulb in half and remove the core with a knife. Then using a mandolin or a sharp knife, slice the fennel bulb as thinly as possible. Don't go all the way up into that upper stem part of the plant, just the main body of the bulb. Combine that with the apricot, and then cut a quarter of a small onion into small chunks or cubes. It would be fine to also use a sweet onion or even a shallot here, just use whatever you have. Next, take a small jalapeno or a quarter of a large one, remove the seeds and finely dice it. Toss that in with everything else. Sprinkle the whole thing generously with salt and a few grinds of fresh black pepper. Add a teaspoon or more of fresh lime or lemon juice. And if you don't have that, try a splash of rice vinegar or white wine vinegar would also work. Drizzle with olive oil and gently toss to combine. Serve this salad immediately while it's still crisp. This is not one where you wanna let it marinate. Be sure to garnish it with a few of those feathery fennel fronds. This salad is light, fresh, surprising, and bright. You get the sweetness from the apricot, and the fennel also has some sweetness. Then you've got the sharp of the onion and a little of that acidity from the lemon or the vinegar. And then you've got this surprising little kick from the jalapeno. It's really nice. Those in my family that tasted this salad declared it brilliant. I hope you do too. Let me know if you try it. You can easily get in touch by emailing eartheats at gmail.com about this recipe or anything else. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, 
Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Laura Riley. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio.